Welcome into episode six of the Daily Emerald Sports Desk Report. I'm here with Elliot. We're going to be talking women's soccer. We got our biggest slate yet today. We have women's soccer, women's volleyball. We got some softball for you. And then we got uh, football as well at the end of the show. So let's get right into it, Elliot. You know, you had a busy week last week, as we all did. Two games against the against the Northern California schools. How did our Oregon Ducks fare? Stanford, they the first shot of the game ended up going in for Stanford, so they immediately started on the back foot. And uh, <clears throat> our defense did what our defense does and dug their heels in, and Leah Freeman stopped any any shots coming in. But uh, they were they were certainly outplayed, but their the defense held strong. And I mean, Stanford's a great team; they're number seven in the nation right now, and they just upset UCLA, so. To only get out with a one nil loss against a team like Stanford, you can kind of hold your head high on that one. It shows that we're competitive with like NCAA tournament caliber teams. You wrote on the show doc that Oregon's been having offensive woes. This isn't the first time that you know you've come to the show talking about that. Why why don't you think Oregon's been able to figure it out on the offensive side and make up for or I guess complement Leia Freeman's play? Uh I. I think it's a lack of uh, depth. Uh, we've had a lot of injuries. A lot of the midfield kind of got scrapped throughout the season, um, and with the amount of players changing and so many moving parts, it's hard for Graham Abel to implement his system that he wants to play. I mean, we're getting outshot five to one in Pac-12 play, so we're it's just lacking that offensive spark. I would say it's probably from the lack of like a good center attacking midfielder that can really direct and come center and get on ball and pass the ball towards the goal or take a shot on goal. Just that threat. And then that opens up for the defense to just continually get hammered. But Graham Abel did say that they have nine freshmen incoming. So that should certainly add to the depth of the squad. And if you want to make a run deep into the tournament, then you got to have a lot of players. Yeah. So, you know, they haven't won in two weeks now, yet they still have a chance to make that tournament? Uh, yeah, so the the Pac-12 is still pretty tight, especially uh, towards the bottom in the middle of the table. If they string together the road wins against Arizona and Arizona State coming up, then they definitely could see themselves jumping up in the table. And they've they've proven that they can hang with top 25 teams, top 10 teams, top 5 teams. So it the the judges and the people that vote for the teams to get in should definitely look at that record. They'll see that they pulled it together. They're coming in form if they get these wins, and they definitely should get into the tournament. They have the the, the talent to do it. It's just can they perform in the next three games? So you're writing a piece on uh, the midfielder Zoe Hasenauer, and you've been working on this for a little while now. It'll be published within the next week or so. I got a chance to look at it this week um, before it was done. Just give us a little sneak peek on that and you know w- what you enjoyed writing about that and how you see that coming together. Uh, Zoe is a really interesting person just in general, but she's a monster on the soccer field. So being able to talk to her and hear her competitive mindset and the confidence that she exudes before she goes out and plays is very, uh, it was very interesting to sit there and pick her mind. She is aware of her capabilities and is willing to, to stand up for herself and really became a leader on the team. So talking to her, talking to Graham Abel about her, uh, 
I had a chance to talk with her mom too and get stories about her coming up and playing as a little girl, pass back and forth with her dad at her older sister's games who also went and played in college. So she kind of just, it's been a, an interesting story to write about. Awesome. Well, that'll be in uh, in the paper in, in a week or so, so you guys can check that out when it's done. Thank you so much for coming on today, Elliot. Yeah, dude, thank you. Okay, now we're going to bring on Nina to talk about women's volleyball. We got two games uh, this past weekend. Oregon went 2-0, and only dropping one set to Utah and Colorado. Uh, take us through, I guess, starting with the Utah game. Now Oregon's ranked 18th in the nation after this weekend. Yeah, so they continued their um, home win streak. They have, have yet to lose at home, which is really exciting for them. Utah, The Utah game, they came out looking strong, um, like they, their normal, typical selves, you know. And then they kind of lost it in the third set, but then they were able to bounce back quickly. It was similar to what happened in Colorado. That was a sweep. Um, in Colorado, though, they just looked in sync. It was really cool watching them because when they were on my side of the court where, like, the media row is, they, everyone was, like, in time together. Like, their jumps were all the same. Th- their digs were all at the same time. So it was just crazy watching that because it just tripped me out. Um, but I think that just shows how much they've developed at the team from the beginning to now. But their long rallies and their defense and their agility is what made them sweep Colorado because they've arguably had the toughest volleyball schedule. And Pac-12 is already a tough conference to play volleyball in. Well, I'm curious about is, you know, you said earlier in the season they were getting great attendance and the games were, you know, as raucous as you had seen them yet. Is that still happening as, as the school year is going along? Sunday, I would say, is the smallest crowd I've seen, but I think it's just everyone was recovering from game day. Um, but they did have a lot of middle school teams there, and they got to do team autographs afterwards. So I think they're just drawing attention from other groups, which is nice. Mm-hmm. So we're at midway through the season, I would say, right? And this team's 13-5, and five, hasn't lost a game at home yet. Just What is the potential for this team that you see? I think it's probably a deep tournament run, right? Yeah, I would say it's, if not their deepest, it will be considered one of their farthest runs that they make. Um, even their losses that they've had, they've showed they haven't been swept yet. They have shown competitiveness. I believe most of their losses have gone to five sets. So I do think that they're still going to be really competitive going into the postseason and the second half of conference play. Yeah. Is there you know one game that you're looking forward to, maybe a home game, to cover in the rest of the conference play? Washington, for sure. Um, watching them on the road in Seattle and just watching how that game turned out, I'm excited to see what they'll do because they had it right there. They were able to come back from being down um, two sets and they were two points away from taking the entire game. So I'm excited to see if they are able to come back from that or not. Awesome. All right. Thank you, Nina. Of course. Okay. Now we're going to bring on uh, Lily and add with Nina. You know, this is Lily's first time on the podcast. She just joined the desk. Very happy to have her with us. And Lily got to cover, you know, softball's kind of preseason extravaganza where they play fall ball, fall ball games. And one thing that I noticed from looking at these box scores is Oregon is blowing out a lot of the teams they're playing. And does that make it tough to take anything substantial away from these games? Or what did you see from Oregon during their fall ball games, Lily? Yeah, in seven games this season, Oregon's outscored their opponents 118-16. to 16. And yeah, I mean, talking to Melissa, head coach Melissa Lombardi uh, post game, I think they're kind of approaching it all by a kind of individual play um, in improvements game by game. Yeah, like in last week, I think they weren't as satisfied with um, their pitching and corrected some things um, on into the round robin on Sunday. And 
just game by game individual improvements but yeah it's in terms of the opponents they're playing it's it's tougher when it's there's not as much competition in the region as like the California schools mm-hmm. you know I know you've been busy with uh, volleyball and stuff but what are some of the things that have stood out to you from or- Oregon softball opening I think just what she said at the end of Oregon's competition Oregon's never really been a softball state um playing here and everything I, I've I've dealt with it and then covering the team last year I also saw it so I think these games are just reps at this point and so it's, it is kind of hard to tell what the team actually looks like because they're facing like community colleges and d3 schools so I think they're just out there having fun they're excited to be back out there Mm -hmm. so who are some of the key players we should be looking out for this year I know Allie Bunker was featured as one of the student athletes of the week this week at at the football game she was put up on the screen and they um, talked about her what are some of the other players that you know we should be looking out for um Stevie Hansen I believe made her debut for the fall exhibition season on Sunday um and I think the throws I think all her throws were like around 62 to 63 miles per hour um and yeah Lombardi just said how impressed she was given that she hasn't thrown very much this season preseason um with how efficient she was um I from what I can remember it's I remember Valerie Wong towards the end of last season was injured. And so when they made their tournaments appearance, they she wasn't a part of it. So I think seeing her back on the roster is a good sign because I know she was highly ranked recruit when she, she was talking to Oregon and all that stuff. Mm-hmm. Awesome. So the season, uh, you know, regular season doesn't start for a little while, right? So what are some things that Oregon unlike the other schools in Oregon that they played against, is a very good volleyball school. They have been for the past few years under Lombardi. So what are some projections that you can see from this from this upcoming season? Well, I think they dealt with a lot of a lot of players left the team at the end of the season. So I think they're just adapting to their brand new team, which that's something everybody in every sport faces. So it's nothing new. They're definitely going to make a playoff appearance I just don't know how far and I guess we just have to wait and see just because it is a new team you just have to see how they adjust it's hard to predict right now awesome anything else from you Lily uh yeah I think they have a few weeks of practice left and then they play an inner squad uh, scrimmage on Thursday November 3rd all right awesome you guys can tune into that inner squad scrimmage to be fun that might be the best competition you'll see in the Oregon uh, (laughs) so far this season Okay, now we're going to move on to the football segment of the podcast. I've been waiting for the segment since, uh, I guess, the end of Saturday's game. Before we get into that game, just quickly going to go around to the other four games that happened in in the Pac-12. Brady wrote his uh, weekly around the Pac-12 piece, so Brady, why don't we kick it to you uh, right away and just take us through the week where the former former North teams went 4-0. Yeah, for sure. I mean, it's a good thing that they don't have that that format anymore. We take the best team from the North and the best team from the South because it uh, would have been a pretty good weekend for the North. Uh, Washington earned its first road win of the year um, at Cal in what was kind of a low-scoring game, um, a lot closer than I think a lot of people anticipated. But Cal's just that kind of team that'll lose to Colorado and then look somewhat presentable the next week. Oregon State still is a very, very good team. I was a little surprised they didn't have more votes to be ranked. Uh, they they rolled past Colorado, and they're now they're 6-2. and two. Um, Those only two losses are to Utah and USC. Um, so that, that that's a team I definitely think that people need to keep an eye on. They had four turnovers, or sorry, they, they forced four Colorado turnovers. Um, and, of course, that chainsaw was rolling all night long. 
Um, and then Stanford um, snuck out a win in a in a gross fifteen to fourteen Denver Broncos kind of score um, over at Arizona State um, in a low scoring one because Arizona's Arizona State's a team that we just can't really figure out this this year. Um, they'll look great and beat Washington at home, and then they'll they'll go lose to Stanford. Uh, but this is to now two wins in a row for Stanford after beating uh, Notre Dame last year. So they've come a long way. It appears since. Oregon made him look foolish a couple of weeks ago. Yeah, Stanford finally getting back on track in the conference after losing what was the past like eleven games in the conference, it was something like that. Yeah, but yeah, thanks for running through that real quick for us. We needed to touch on that before we get into the game. So now we're moving on to the main event. Oregon beats UCLA forty-five to thirty in Autzen Stadium last Saturday. Moves up to number eight in the country, the highest-ranked Pac-12 team now. UCLA moves down to twelve after the loss. We got a lot of talking points. Uh, I don't really know where I'm going to start, so I'm going to freeball that because there was just so much that went on. Um, but I think it this this game was about. Uh, I think the the place we have to start is C- Coach Dan Lanning as a first year coach, six games into his head coaching career. From my perspective, out coached Chip on the other side of, of the field. One of the plays that stood out to me as um, you know, and both of you guys touch on this in your story, Jack and Brady, was the onside kick and just everything that went into calling that play. Um, and you know, we t- he talked about it in the press conference. Was UCLA had been able to move the ball in Oregon? Oregon's offense looked good, but its defense was still finding its footing. Uh, and, and UCLA was going to get the ball back to start the second half after Oregon scored a touchdown, so they would have had two possessions in a row, basically. And another thing he said in the press conference was that. They had seen the the forecast. The rain it was actually going to happen in Austin Stadium, and with all of that in mind, they executed one of the most surprising and amazing onside kicks that I have seen. Um, so yeah, w- what did you guys think about that dichotomy and the disparity between the two coaches? One coach who had brought so much joy to Oregon, uh, you know, a decade ago. Yeah. So like you said, Aaron, uh, the onside kick was truly shocking. I mean, Jack and I were sitting there for a while going. Did that just happen? Did that really just happen? And then we were three, four, five plays into that drive going, I still can't believe they even have the ball. Um, and I, I touched on that in my article. Like Chip Kelly is known for being this this creative, high-action, fun-to-watch offensive play call. And to have Dan Lanning be the one with all the, the, the tricky, sneaky stuff, whether it be the onside kick or back-to-back fourth-and-one calls within your own territory to go for it, I think that was really rejuvenating to see for Oregon fans because it's possible that we haven't had a coach like Chip Kel- like Dan Lanning since Chip Kelly. Um, and to see him out coach Chip in Autzen was was pretty cool to watch. Right. I think that's super accurate. I would definitely say uh, Dan Lanning out chipped Chip Kelly. Nice. Chip Kelly. <laughs> nice. Um, also, uh, I think it was in the first uh, quarter, we actually tried a flea flicker too. It was unsuccessful, mm. but just to see that kind of creativity was, uh, was great. So uh, a few other plays that I wanted to get to that you know, f- kind of maybe flew under the radar on our chaotic week and weekend that transpired in Eugene. The just right before that onside kick was also a turning point too. Um, the Ducks were in the middle of the field. Uh, first play, first play of this kind of series. Nick's handed it off to Bucky for about a seven yard gain, and then the, the next play, it was third down, I believe, third and third and four. Uh, Nick's took a read option, 16 yards, and set up. Uh, you know this this 
49-yard touchdown pass to, to Troy Franklin that was very similar to the one that he they connected on against uh, BYU. Um, and th- the, the play action that was set up because of those two previous running plays and because of all the success that Oregon has had running the ball led to that touchdown. And just to see Nick's and he's been doing it all year, just go downfield in the middle of the game when when the game is still in reach is just something that is, like you said, so rejuvenating for Oregon fans just to see them push the ball downfield and utilize the recruits that they go out and get. You know, Franklin has had one of the most... I wrote about this in in what's going to be the, the, the um, cover for this week, but Franklin's on track to be one of the top three most statistically prominent receivers of the past decade for Oregon. His yards, um, total yards is going to be up there with Byron Marshall and Dylan Mitchell. So he's just having a great season, and that's because of the ability to open up the passing game through the running game and play action and just all of it coming together and culminating in that 49-yard pass touchdown that you know they had. And Bo Nix touched on that a little bit in his press game post-conference. I was talking to him a little bit, and he really – he really credited the entire offense. He said, everyone's playing really great right now. The running backs are playing great. The wide receivers are playing great. The offensive line, obviously, they've been a staple of ours this year. They're playing great. It really makes my job easy because I just got to get the ball to them, um, which I think was a, was a really, I mean, it was it was exactly what you'd want him to say. But I think it's also a very true statement. Like, there, there really isn't a hole in this offense right now. Yeah, and that's really encouraging to see and something I don't think we've seen. And definitely not last year when we had Anthony Brown and we're really kind of run-dependent. Uh, but this offense can beat you so many different ways. So many different ways, right? We have two stellar running backs. The O-line's amazing. Bo Nix is spreading the ball out. We talk about Troy Franklin, but Terrence Ferguson, some of these tight ends, Cam McCormick got a touchdown. They're also balling out. So, you know, to kind of have an identity of physicality up front uh, is good, but I-, I like that they're not reliant on it. Yeah, it's kind of like a mixture of physicality and flair. One thing that you touched on, Brady, was the offensive line. And I think, you know, I, as much as I hate to do this, and maybe I'll whisper it into the microphone because I don't want to give Chris Ball his praise, but he recruited that offensive line. Now, he didn't use it to the best of its abilities because he would just, you know, run for four yards, run for four yards, and then run for four yards. So it, it wasn't as fun to watch. So Lanning's kind of, you know, uh, feeding off of that offensive line that Cristobal brought to Oregon, but he's using it in a different way and it's working to success. You know, you, they've given up one... Every time I look up the stat and see that they've only allowed one sack in seven games is insane. They've played against... You know, they haven't played against bad defenses. They played Georgia, which was, you know, the best team in the nation, uh, arguably. BYU at the time was ranked top 15. Um, we've seen they've kind of fallen back a little bit, but they played... Number number nine team in UCLA. They've played you know top fifteen opponents. They've played good defenses and still only one sack. And I believe the sack was kind of a you know he ran out of bounds behind the line of scrimmage one yard. It wasn't even like he got sacked six yards behind the line of scrimmage. So every time I see that stat, it's just it's insane in in my opinion. All credit to the offensive line, but uh, also I think we have to highlight how great Bo is at getting out of the pocket, staying out of trouble. I think that's a really big reason why we've only taken one sack so far this year. And, uh, of course, i uh, got to uh, shout out Alex Forsyth, one uh, Pac-12 Offensive Lineman of the Week, um, second consecutive Oregon player to do that uh, in the past couple weeks. So, great job. One play that uh, I guess kind of didn't get run, but I was interested in, I don't know if you guys remember, but they had... Uh, either first or second and goal on the two, 
and they, or maybe it was the two point conversion, and they split the offensive line out wide, and they had like the three offensive line, uh, like in the middle. They had Bass out and Sala out left, and James with them. And I had been told earlier in the week by people who went to practice that they were going to run something like this and throw a quick screen. They ended up motioning everybody back and running, you know, for the touchdown for James. But it would have been interesting to see those linemen out there blocking on the perimeter without having to start in the middle to get there. So, you know, just another added play to the to the trickery that Lanning has in his playbook. Could have been cool to see that. Um, was there any other plays that you guys wanted to touch on from from this UCLA game? Uh, that one uh, Troy Franklin catch on the sideline where he just mossed the defensive back. I, I don't know who it was, but that was really eye-opening. And um, I know the scouts that were sitting behind me and Brady, Bills, Commanders, um, Colts, Jets, probably some other team, they're looking at that. One, th- one play I also really liked was that touchdown to uh, Terrence Ferguson, the Foxy play. Uh, I think one thing Oregon's been doing a lot these past few weeks is building up the screen game. Uh, so that they can sell it to get this play to work. Uh, and yeah, they had Troy Franklin come on the scene. Ferguson went out like he was blocking the corner, went right up the sideline, and he was wide open for a touchdown. It was beautiful, and I love to see that innovation from Dillingham. I love that. And, you know, my flag football team, intramural flag football team, we actually, you know, taught that to Lanning. Um, <laughs> so we ran that play uh, in our first game, and it set up a touchdown because they bit on the pick, they bit on the screen, and they pass interfered our receiver. So Lanning, you know, he talked to me about that. And he was like, yeah, I'm going to implement that into our game. And, it, you know, it worked. It was more clean than ours because they do have Division One level athletes, uh, unlike us. But it was cool to see that. Um, Ferguson came away with his wrist intact, too. <laughs> I'm only hearing excuses, Aaron. Wait, so are you trying to say that I do have scouts a... your IM football games and takes concepts from those? Well, not himself. Like, they send an, a, a lower-level scout. Oh, guys. of course. Hmm. Um, uh, Keep it low-key. Yeah. But I did fracture my wrist on the play, so just so you guys know. Um, oh, and you caught the touchdown, so it was I worth did, it. I did. Okay, but going, getting back to the game, uh, that Moss was actually one play that I also enjoyed. It was a, you know, a big play. I think Nick's was scrambling a little bit and kind of was throwing it away, but also towards Franklin, and he went up and got it. So he he's one of the best receivers we've seen, apart from the stats, just at our time at Oregon. Um, I think there's one other thing that we got to touch on bef- as as we go go about this game this is an argument we were having before we went on air Uh oh. but Bo Nix is being talked about in the Heisman by who by us by, by us. who by the game day by the game day uh panel on Saturday okay it, it's it's out there it's not just by people uh, I don't know if he should be a finalist but you can't tell me he doesn't have a case right now here here's I, what, I here's absolutely what, can't here's what, what the case is Dorian Thompson-Robinson had the fifth-highest odds for uh, Heisman before this week. Bo Nix outplayed him. That's fantastic. Bo Nix, statistically, isn't a top-three quarterback in the Pac-12. I'm looking at this right now. He's seventh in total yards. He's Take a look at seventh his in there. yards per game, and he's fifth in touchdowns. Okay, he's first what? in rushing, right? That's fantastic. That's one stat. If he's not even if he's not even at the top of the conference, which is not known as a as a football powerhouse, if he's not even at the top of the conference, how in the world can you tell me he's the best not only quarterback but football player in college football? There's no way. Well, now I want to be excited about him too. I do. I liked what I saw from him on Saturday. It was fun. It's we have a quarterback that we're excited to watch again. But just to, to jump the gun and say, oh, this is a Heisman candidate, I think is really premature. When you look at he's not even in the top three in any of those stats and within his own conference. 
I don't think it's jumping the gun when he has a touchdown to interception ratio of around 20 to 1. His quarterback ratings have been great so far this year. Um, he hasn't thrown 20 touchdowns. God's, he's got <laughs> close. Total. Total, I'm sure. I think I'm, I'm going to have to side with Brady on this one. I mean, if Herbert okay. didn't get one, and you got those guys in the SEC, well, Herbert wasn't it. utilized correctly. That's very true, but I mean, the stats aren't there, and he's in the Pac-12. You know, even if he was on par with some of those guys, the Bryce Youngs, the C.J. Strouds, the Hendon Hookers, there's going to be that asterisk. Uh, I'm not the even competition saying... level. You saw how he played against Georgia. I mean, that's. I mean, he could throw five touchdowns for the rest of the season every single game, and I'm still not so sure. Okay, I just want to present these. I I don't really know where I stand on this. I think I lean closer to Brady's side that. It, it's a little premature to bring him up as, as a Heisman candidate. Um, however, I think there's two things that we need to take into account. And I think we can make our decision based off these two things that don't have to do with his stats, that you can choose which stats you want to make your argument. I chose the rushing stats to argue that he's you know, a Heisman candidate. Brady chose the passing stats to argue that he's not. We for can a, choose For that. a quarterback. Okay. He's a quarterback in an offense that wants to utilize him as a rusher. He's being utilized in this way on a team that is now ranked number eight in the country and has three wins, or, sorry, two wins against highly ranked opponents, both of which were on national television. And I think that we have to take into account that when you're put on national television, it is different than when you're put in the 8.30 p.m. slot in a Pac-12 game. Christian McCaffrey didn't win the Heisman because of this. And when, when Bo Nix has a really good game, when they're on game day, that is this is a world we live in where when you're put in the media center, you're taken a different light than when you're not. And Bo Nix, in the biggest game of his of, of this season on ESPN game day, had a, in a very good game and outplayed a guy who was in the running for Heisman. And that is taken into account beyond his stats. It, it is. But I will say that these other people that Brennan was talking about, the Bryce Youngs of college football, they're playing on national television a lot more frequently than Bo Nix are. They're used to the spotlight and they're performing well in the spotlight. And Bonix has these stats, still not the best in the Pac-12, but he's also playing Arizona and Stanford. He's not playing Georgia every week because we've seen what happens when he does play Georgia every week. I, I want to be excited about Bonix. I'm thrilled that we have an awesome quarterback. But to say that he's in the Heisman, I think, is 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 utterly ridiculous. I, I agree with you. I don't. I think it's a little bit premature. I don't think it's utterly ridiculous. And I think that you'll see. You'll see that. It'll come out, his odds will be much higher than they were last week. And I do think that you have to take into account the fact that he's on national television doing this. Because Oregon hasn't been on national television a lot in the four years that I've been here. And they just had their biggest game in the four years that I've been here. And he performed at a very high level. He did. And I'm not going to take that away from him. However, the the Heisman is, is a season-long award. And I think one game on national television, as fun as it was to watch isn't going to cement him as a, as a candidate for a season-long event when you're playing in such a weekend conference. Because I'll tell you, too, the next two matchups they have against the Cal defense and the Colorado defense, his stats are going to look good when those in these two up. games. Maybe it'll be a chance up. to bring those passing numbers up. Yeah, right. And I also don't think it's just one game. They're the number eight team in the nation. They, they've covered the spread in the last, like, what, five games? I don't, against teams like BYU and UCLA, I don't think it's one game, bro. So we're going to move on because I think we're getting a little bit too heated about this. So Oregon plays against Cal um, next week, and this is one of their easier games on the schedule after going through a few tougher ones. However, one thing that I do want to touch on before we get into this, one of the kind of downfalls of the past few Oregon teams has been these 
trap games. You know, Stanford last year was a trap game. They were a team that ended the season three and nine. In 2019, when Oregon had the chance with Justin Herbert to go to the college fall playoff trap game against Arizona State. What will make this iteration of the Ducks team different than the past ones is if they don't get caught by a trap game. And, you know, you talked about it earlier when we were going around the Pac-12. Cal could be Cal could could lose to Colorado one week and fight the next week. Now I I don't think they're gonna they're gonna touch Oregon. I really don't. But just do you guys think that before we get to talking about the Cal game, this Oregon team is different from the ones in the past where they're not gonna get caught by a trap game? I I believe so. Um, it seems like Dan Lanning does not take his foot off the gas pedal. Something uh, we did see happen these past few years. I have complete confidence that we'll finish out the season strong. Yeah, Jack's right. The energy around the team just feels a little more different. They seem more focused than usual. They seem more disciplined than usual. The only thing that scares me is Colorado, or sorry, Cal, coming off three consecutive losses. No one's scared uh, of Colorado. No one's scared of Colorado. <laughs> uh, but no, they're gonna. They're definitely gonna be wanting to play spoiler um, home game. You know, I mean, keep your eye on it. These definitely. I don't think anybody should bank these two games in now, especially since the margin for error is so small. Especially if you wanted to get a playoff bid. Uh, they can't lose another game. Yeah. So can't. every game is a playoff game from here on out. Yeah. Um, I don't think there's much to touch on with the Cal game. I, I do want to touch on one thing. I just think Oregon will beat Cal. It's not much we have to say about it. Um, but what are you going to say, Brady? I was going to say, I'm looking at these stats again, and it's only one stat, and I understand. But when it comes to total offense, Oregon is second in the Pac-12 with a little over 2,200 yards. Cal is 11th. So even if the Cal defense steps up like it kind of-ish did against Washington, the Cal offense isn't going to be enough to keep them in contention with this team. Yeah, it's just a point to touch on with the teams that have fallen victim to these trap games. But one more thing, I know you you talked about the feel around the team. That's one thing I want to talk about, and I've written multiple pieces on this now. As a student and as a senior, I've never experienced anything like this with an Oregon team. And it's not for lack of success. Oregon, you know, went to the Rose Bowl in my freshman year and was ranked as high, you know, it was kind of fraudulent as number three last year. So the team has experienced success. This success feels different. Last week, ESPN Game Day was here. Pat McAvee was here signing, you know, some stuff for people. It, it, it was a different feel around the team. It just feels like this is a football football school and what it's like built out to be and it didn't feel that way the last three years and I definitely think you know in my sophomore and junior year that we're not the same because of COVID-19 and a lot of these games didn't have fans or you had to wear masks at the games I think this year feels more normal and the team just has a different buzz around it because they're winning games behind a dominant offense what do you guys think is different about this team versus the last few teams that Oregon's put out I honestly credit the excitement around the team right now to the Georgia loss. I think in past years there's been Oregon starts off undefeated and is ranked super, super high to start, and everyone's like, all right, we've got this we've got this fantastic team. We can just coast, and then we get hit with a trap game, and that, that just sucks the energy out. We got that game out of the way early on, and after all the excitement of, oh, we have a new coach, we have a new quarterback, that was all wiped away. Now to see them build. Like we got to win games. We got to win games, but also as fans, we're getting to watch Oregon climb in the rankings week by week, and we're watching this team get better under this new coach. And how do you not love Dan Lanning? 
as as a fan, as a person, and as a coach, how do you not love that guy? And so we're getting to watch this. We're getting to watch this team he's building. We're getting to see this team get better and better every week after already having the disappointment lost behind us. I think that's where that excitement comes from because every week this team's looking better, and every week this team's chances of doing great things are getting better as opposed to, okay, things are going really well right now, but when's the trap game? I thought you made a great point about the Georgia game. Uh, really taught us a lot about adversity and how to come back from it. You know, we got our butts whooped, uh, and we've come back even stronger. Uh, I think it's both great chemistry for the team and, uh, like you said, excitement around the program. I think the improvement of the Pac-12 has been a big factor, too. I think Lincoln Riley and Caleb Williams and Travis Dye going to USC might have actually benefited Oregon because now they're playing up to their competition, not down to it. The Pac-12 is pretty good this year. I mean, there's more, I think, definitely better than the ACC. Big 12, maybe, definitely not better than the SEC. But they're playing up to the competition. There's more of that edge and more of that pressure. And I think that's been huge, maybe a a point that not a lot of people are considering. Right. And uh, there have been four Pac-12 teams, four different Pac-12 teams that have been ranked top 10 this year, different times, of course. I just thought it was great as a student for Oregon to be put on the national stage with game day and to deliver on that stage. And that was something that I had never experienced before. It was something that they didn't even have an opportunity to experience since 2018 when Stanford was here for, with game day. Uh, so that, that was a great experience. And if anybody, you know, if we don't have anything else to, to touch on before uh, we end this show, uh, we can end it right there. But that was for me going to game day and experiencing that as a student was something that I'll never forget. Yeah, it was spectacular. I was um, lucky enough to get a uh, media pass to go backstage, and uh, I was able to uh, get a picture with Dan Lanning. Uh, just look at the energy uh, overall from the student section there, and uh, unbelievable, uh, like nothing I've ever been a part of, and uh, hopefully they can come back ASAP. I think the, the, the when Lee Corso puts the headgear on in person, it is so much cooler than when he does it on television. I did not realize how much cooler Especially it was. when he brings a live duck on, too. Yeah, Oof. yeah. I thought it was going to fly away, for sure. <laughs> but anyways, that's it for the, for the episode. It went a little longer today, but we had a lot to touch on um, with Oregon being in the spotlight. Thank you guys for listening, and we'll be back next week.